Previously on the grand scheme, Snatching Sinatra. Joe and I had run up quite a sizable hotel bill. That stuff had to be paid off in order to not leave evidence. I realized that I had to go back up to Lake Tahoe. It was very surreal knowing that I was the most wanted person in the country. I have to go up to Heavenly Valley Ski Lift to shake the FBI. And Pam turned out to be very good camouflage because we looked like a young couple on our honeymoon. Now I'm feeling like we might get away with this thing. And so I go back to the Mason house. John and Joe had given their word to Frank Jr. that it would be over that night. I've got a revolt in my hands. When one of the payphones rings, the FBI agent would say, this is Patrick Henry. I gave the guy instructions to go to a gas station, to another payphone, to yet another gas station, to place the money between the two school buses. I go around the block, come back, and there's no Joe. And I thought maybe he ran into another telephone pole or something and knocked himself out again. And all of a sudden, I see three taxi cabs roll up. I knew it was the FBI, but I got out of my car and picked up the suitcase. We were just staring each other down. When we left you last time, Barry Keenan was standing in a parking lot of a Texaco station. He was just a few months removed from receiving a divine prophecy that he could solve his money problems by pulling off a high-stakes kidnapping. And now he was clutching the fruits of his labor in his hands, a suitcase full of ransom money. And I was very surprised by how heavy it was. All Barry wanted to do was take the money back to the safe house and start counting it. But before he could do that, he had a bit of a situation on his hands. Namely, he was in the middle of a standoff with a bunch of FBI agents and fedoras. They swarmed the Texaco station in decoy vehicles, three yellow taxis and two ice cream trucks. They had him surrounded. Now, you might think Barry would be terrified in a moment like this, but he wasn't. He knew the FBI couldn't make a move until they knew the whereabouts of Frank Sinatra Jr. Plus, now that he'd reached the plan of operations most critical stage, he was counting on God and the committee to see him through. Staring down the agents, Barry took a deep breath and waited for a sign from above. But he didn't get one. And as the seconds ticked by, Barry realized that it had actually been quite a while since he'd heard from the committee. I mean, there wasn't any formal goodbye. It's just like everything that was going wrong was there was no God in any of this part of the transaction. So Barry summoned his last ounce of courage and under the watchful eye of the G-Men, he calmly placed the suitcase in his trunk, and he got back in his car. And so I put my car in drive and start pulling away, and the three cabs and the two ice cream trucks start following me. And I knew the neighborhood real well, and it wasn't hard to, to ditch them. And I ditched them and drove back into Westwood Village and called John and said, John, I've lost Joe and he freaked out. Now John Irwin, as you may recall, had switched allegiances. Earlier that night, he told Barry that all he cared about was making sure Junior got home safely. Though you gotta figure, he also wanted his cut of the ransom money. So when Barry called to report that the ransom plan had gone sideways, Irwin wasn't happy. He said, don't panic, John. I'm gonna come out and I wanna take Junior. He said, okay, but if you're not here in an hour, we're out of here. Barry had already lost Joe, and now Irwin was threatening to abandon him. This whole thing had been about money from the beginning, and now Barry had the cash in his trunk, so 
Why was everyone being so unreasonable? And what had become of the committee? I mean, where were they when Barry needed them the most? Had they abandoned him? Was he suddenly alone in this whole thing? I said, but I have the money. Stay there. I'm on my way out. I'm John Stamos, and you're listening to The Grand Scheme, Snatching Sinatra. Chapter 7, The Proceeds. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Grand Scheme ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Once he ditched the long arm of the law, Barry raced back to the safe house. He had to get there to talk John Irwin off the ledge. He couldn't risk any more side deals between the kidnappers and the kidnappee. As Barry pulled into the driveway of the safe house, something didn't look right. He jumped out of the car and burst through the front door, still panting from his game of chicken with the FBI. The house was empty. And the lights were on the house, the door was open, and I went, oh my God. Now I'm freaked. It's easy to forget in light of everything that's happened in the story, but this was actually the second time in a matter of weeks that Barry found himself alone in this little house. Last time, Irwin and Joe had sworn off the plan of operation after they tried and failed to kidnap Junior from his apartment in L.A. That was the night Barry holed up in this safe house drinking whiskey, and the night he called his friend Colin to see about a job at Citibank. The night he was ready to give up on the whole thing and go straight. But that wasn't going to work tonight. Barry had $240,000 of ransom money in a suitcase in his trunk and no idea where Irwin or Joe had run off to. And where the hell was this golden goose? Was Junior with them? Were they all three boozing it up at Senior's house with Sammy Davis and Dean Martin, chowing down on Nancy Senior's homemade pasta with clam sauce? One thing seems certain. If Irwin and Joe crossed paths with the feds, they definitely would have ratted him out and led them directly to the safe house in their caravan of ice cream trucks. Barry started pacing back and forth in the empty house, running his hands through his hair, trying desperately to come up with yet one more Hail Mary. He pulled so many rabbits out of his hat in the last few weeks, surely he could do it one more time. But now he was going on 72 hours without sleep, and he was coming up empty. Then, it hit him. Burn the house down. Great idea, Barry. You're already on the hook for kidnapping and extortion. Why not toss a little arson onto the pile? Thankfully, even in his sleep-deprived state, Barry realized this probably wasn't a good plan. The little old lady that rented the house to me, I was afraid this was her only income, and I didn't want to do that. It would be unethical to to endanger this lady's livelihood. Uh, Barry, you know what they say, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And so, instead of picking up a match, Barry picked up the phone. I called a friend of mine and asked him if I could, by now it's about one o'clock in the morning, 
woke him up and said, is it possible for me to stay there tonight? I'll tell you all about it in the morning. He said, sure, we'll leave the front door unlocked. Just come in. So I just picked up what I could, threw everything in the car, and took off toward West L.A. Now, the friend's name was Ted, and if you're wondering why he didn't ask any questions when Barry called him in the middle of the night and asked if he could crash, it's because Ted was, well, you guessed it, a baron. At long last, around 1.30 a.m., Barry pulled up outside Ted's house, jumped out of the car, and swung his head around to make sure he hadn't been followed by any ice cream trucks. He grabbed the suitcase of cash from his trunk and quietly crept into Ted's spare bedroom. And Barry knew he should get some sleep. He was probably safer tonight, but things weren't going to get any easier tomorrow, and he needed to have his wits about him. But there was one more thing that he couldn't resist doing. So I went into Ted's office, and I found a little home toolkit pried the suitcase loose with a screwdriver. And it was so packed full of money that it popped up when I hit the second latch. And it has a distinct aroma when the whole bunch of it is together. But not knowing where Joe was, I didn't have much elation, but it was somewhat exciting to see that much cash. So I started putting money into paper bags to start you know, paying off people I owed money to. Barry was pouring sweat. He was shoveling heaps of bills into bags. He was giddy. I mean, here he was literally holding the salvation God had promised him in his hands. He worked feverishly, counting the stacks as best he could as his eyelids started to droop. And then the next thing I remember, their alarm clock went off so they could go to work. The sound of Ted's alarm jolted Barry out of his deep sleep. He'd been dreaming about that treasure hunting expedition in Mexico. And when he woke up, he thought he was still dreaming, possibly because he was lying in a pile of cash on the floor. He shook his head and he struggled to his feet. Turns out he wasn't in Mexico. He was hiding from the feds in the spare bedroom of his friend Ted's house. The sun was blasting through the window. Barry squinted through the blinds and saw Ted and his wife climb into their car to leave for work. Barry checked his watch. It was 7.30 a.m. Then I still didn't know where anybody was. So I turned on the radio. Barry started opening cabinets looking for coffee. He was thinking to himself, this is the reason why I did all this. I want a life like this again. Nice house, bright sunny kitchen, listening to the radio while I make myself a little coffee and breakfast. That is, of course, until Barry focused on what the radio actually had to say. And I heard that, you know, Frank Sinatra Jr. was home safe and sound. We'll be right back. Considering a master's in forensic science, but juggling family and work, the University of Florida Forensic Science Online Graduate Program is your solution. Tailored for working pros, this entirely online program fits seamlessly into your schedule. Crafted with FBI and law enforcement input, the curriculum equips you with skills to elevate your career. Join over 1,500 graduates who earned their master's since 2000. Specialize in forensic toxicology, DNA and serology, forensic drug chemistry, or create your plan with an MS in forensic science. Advance your career with a master's. No need to rearrange your life. It's online, interactive, and built for professionals like you. No GRE required. Network with forensic pros globally. Ready for the next chapter? Join the world's largest forensic science program and alumni network at forensicscience.ufl.edu slash Wondery. Your journey begins at the University of Florida. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. 
This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Third act curtain to the Sinatra kidnapping. Mary Keenan switched off the radio and stood quietly in the middle of Ted's kitchen, holding a scoop full of coffee grounds, his hands quivering slightly. Now, if Junior was home safely, that meant he'd probably already started talking about what had happened and who put him through it. Mary grabbed the phone from Ted's wall. I called John's house. He answered the phone. I said, what the heck happened to you? He said, well, and then he told me that he had given his word to Frank Jr. that he would take him home if anything went wrong with the pickup. And when I called him, John didn't know whether I had killed Joe, was going to come back to the house and kill him. Anyway, so he told me that that was his concern. Evidently, Irwin and Jr. had fled the house sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. Irwin dropped off Jr. at an overpass and then sped off into the night. Jr. flagged out a passing cop car and hitched the ride back to his mom's house. Barry hung up on Irwin and started pacing again. Now, if Irwin was at home answering his phone, that would seem to indicate that he hadn't been arrested, at least not yet. And the feds had no idea who Ted was, so Barry was still safe for the moment. He decided to try and reach Joe. He picked up the phone and dialed, listening to the phone ring, and ring, and ring. And he answered on the 12th or 15th ring. He had been sound asleep. I said, well, Junior's been released. He's happily home with his parents. John's at his house. You're at your apartment. We have the money, so let's not panic. Unfortunately for Barry, panicking was exactly what Joe Amsler had done the night before. An FBI agent had gotten out of one of the taxi cabs and was walking toward where Joe was hiding. And Joe took off and vaulted over a chain leak fence and punctured both hands from the top of the chain link fence between the gas station and the VA cemetery. And then he was in a blind panic and he kept running into headstones and ended up walking about a mile and a half from the veteran cemetery to his apartment. Joe's voice sounded a little off while Barry was on the phone with him, so Barry decided to drive over to his apartment and check on him. Now, when he arrived, it was worse than he had imagined. Joe Amsler's midnight run through the cemetery had left him in bad shape. He looked like Jesus Christ after the crucifixion. He looked a mess. And uh, I said, the first thing I'm going to do, Joe, is take you to my doctor. Barry called his doctor, who unfortunately couldn't see Joe until 2 o'clock that afternoon. Now, folks, if you ever discover one of your friends looking like Jesus Christ after the crucifixion, there are a few things that you should do. One, get on your knees and ask for forgiveness, if that's your thing. Two, snap a picture and send it to that dude on TMZ or whatever. Or do what any sensible human would do. Get them to an emergency room as fast as you possibly can. What you shouldn't do is leave them alone in their apartment while you run some errands, which, you guessed it, is unfortunately what our boy Barry did. Got my wife's wedding ring and Rolex watch and other things that we had hawked out of hawk and paid off my bill at the drugstore, which was quite high because I was living on all these prescription drugs. 
and paid off my liquor store bill, and, you know, all these things. And I left $25,000 in my mom's strongbox, a safe in her home, uh, with a note for her to use this money in case she never saw me again. Now, joking aside, these weren't so much errands as they were things that he wanted to do for a long time. Barry caused a lot of people a lot of pain. But reparations were always part of the plan of operation. And getting back to a state of grace started with paying off his debts and taking care of his people. Barry got back to Joe's apartment a little before two. Joe stumbled out of his apartment and approached Barry's car. Barry assured Joe that he'd get him to a dock as fast as he could. But Joe had other priorities. The first thing he want, needed was a drink. So we went to a nearby bar and got Joe a couple Bloody Marys, and I had a couple of VO and milks. And then we had lunch and then took him to Dr. Bell's office. So after a light lunch and a whole lot of alcohol, then Barry finally got Joe to the doctor's office. Thankfully, Dr. Bell was able to patch up Joe without too much trouble. But Barry knew he still needed to patch things up with John Irwin, so the boys jumped back in the car and headed towards Irwin's apartment. Barry switched on the radio as they drove. And of course, the FBI was on the radio all the time saying, you know, call this number if you see anybody suspicious, blah, blah, blah. Barry started driving a little faster after he heard that. When they got to Irwin's apartment, they hustled inside and switched on the TV. FBI agents search a house in the Canoga Park area of Los Angeles. The house, they say, where Frank Sinatra Jr. was held for ransom. Barry watched in disbelief. How on earth did the FBI find the safe house? Barry turned away from the TV and saw John Irwin sitting on the floor with his head in his hands. And John admitted that on the way from the house to the freeway with Junior in his car, he had gotten lost. So he pulls into a gas station and says, hey, buddy, how do I get to the Ventura freeway? And the guy says, well, you go down two blocks, turn right, and about a mile and a half, you'll run into the freeway. And so that basically told Junior about where the house was. Things were looking pretty grim for our three amigos. But then the coverage jumped to footage of the Sinatra family holding a press conference in their driveway. Frank Sinatra Jr. came out with his mother and sister Tina and said a few words that he was fine and didn't recognize the kidnappers and didn't have no idea who they were and so forth. Barry, Joe, and Irwin all leaned back and exhaled for the first time all day. After a long night of shifting alliances, Junior was, for some reason, not offering any clues about the identity of his abductors. At least, not yet. Junior just bought the gang a little more time. And as Barry kept watching, there was some more good news. They interviewed Frank Sinatra Sr. And he said, yeah, we're going to have a party tonight to celebrate my son's homecoming. And so Sinatras are happy. Junior's home. Father and son were drawn closer together, which was part of my rationalization that I had known from newspaper articles. For Barry, this was perhaps the best news of all. I mean, at its heart, this is what he believed the plan of operation was all about. He wanted to bring families together. His own, sure, but also the Sinatras. Barry knew about the rift between father and son from the article that he read back in the barbershop in Palm Springs. And of course, everything he heard from his high school buddy, Nancy Sinatra, how Frank Jr. was always trying to make his dad proud. And that's where Barry and Jr. had something in common. Let's not forget, Barry's other misguided motive with this kidnapping was to make enough money to pull his dad's business out of the gutter. Barry had seen that look on Jr.'s face, strutting around in a tux at a county fair in the middle of nowhere, trying to imitate Frank Sr.'s charm and swagger. 
It was that same look that Barry had on his face when he was trying to learn his dad's tricks in the securities business. In Barry's unbalanced mental state, he'd done the Sinatras a favor. Nothing like a good old-fashioned kidnapping to bring a family together, right? At Mrs. Sinatra's Bel Air home, there's an atmosphere of thanks and rejoicing. The entire family, father, mother, sister Nancy, and Frank Jr., all echoed the same thought, thank God it's over. A happy ending to what could have been a tragedy. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Of course, there were still a few loose ends to tie up before Barry and the boys could avoid a tragic outcome of their own. They switched off the TV and they huddled around Irwin's coffee table. And the plan was that John was going to go to New Orleans, because I had known from my research and had been to a Mardi Gras back in 1961, that very few people in New Orleans ever asked questions about what anybody else was doing there. It was a city of a thousand secrets, or a million secrets, they say. And so John was going to pack up, and he had admitted to his wife that he was involved in the Sinatra kidnapping, and she was crushed. But she took her religion very seriously and wasn't going to leave them and all that stuff. So she was going to stay living with her parents, move out of the house that they were in, and John would send her money. And that was the plan. And then Joe was going to go up to Santa Barbara and get jobs commercial fishing for abalone and sea urchins and things like that. And uh, I would be busy change the money out so that we can make the investments and all that stuff. It was all coming together. Barry handed Irwin his share of the ransom money. The proceeds is what I called it. And wished him well. It come a long way. From looking for treasure on a scuba diving trip in Mexico to watching Junior sing his heart out at a county fair to an 11th hour mutiny at a safe house in the valley. And then we all agreed that we would meet at St. Paul the Apostle Church on Easter Sunday High Mass to sort of compare notes. So everybody was agreeable to that plan. The crew looked around the coffee table, taking each other in. Two barons and a small-time mobster with a pencil-thin mustache, thick as thieves, one last time. That's when we decided the best thing to do was everybody scatter. As they stood to part ways, Barry switched the TV back on just to make sure everything was still under control which, of course, it wasn't. Then the next thing that's on TV is an artist's rendering of Barry Keenan, and it looked enough like me that I realized that I need to change my looks. Barry was probably wishing he had one of those fake mustaches right about now. He and Joe jumped back in the car and went to a hotel to hide. Now again, you've got to ask yourself, what on earth was going through Joe Amsler's mind in this moment? I mean, why would he stick with Barry at this point? got his money, it's Barry's face on TV, not his, why not just take off? Evidently, the Baron's Oath was back on. At any rate, when they got to the hotel, they switched the TV on again. Now, look, if it was me, at some point, I would have just stopped turning the damn thing on, but hey, what do I know? 
more bad news. Both John Foss and Jr. worked with FBI renderings. The FBI tracked down John Foss, the trumpeter who'd been eating cheeseburgers with Jr. in his hotel room in their underwear when Barry knocked on the door in Tahoe. There was a new police sketch of Barry staring back at him from the TV screen, and this one was even more accurate. And they got a, a rendering of me that looked pretty much like me. It was amazing. Barry was starting to feel queasy. He leaned on the wall for support. Maybe there was still a way out of this. I mean, just because the FBI knew what Barry looked like, that didn't mean they knew who he was or where he was, right? But then he had a crushing recollection. I remembered that I had called my friend Colin when I thought the deal was dead and there was no hope. It felt like another lifetime, but it was actually just eight days earlier. In the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination and a string of failed attempts to nab Junior after one of his shows in L.A., Barry had retreated to the Mason Street house to drown his sorrows. It's the same moment that I mentioned earlier, the last fleeting moment when Barry had a chance to go straight. After a few shots of whiskey, he picked up the phone and he called his friend Colin, who worked at Citibank in New York. He asked Colin if he could get him a job. I just wanted to get as far away from L.A. As, and failure as possible. So we had a nice chat, and as a follow-up to that, I sent pictures of Pam and a letter describing our relationship and that she was a member of the Tridel sorority and what have you. At the time, Colin had seemed like a lifeline, really, but now... And that would turn out to be a fatal phone call because it was his private line at the bank. And when the FBI found the house, they checked all the numbers that had been made from the phone in the house. And even though I'd yanked the phone out of the wall, and took it with me, they could go to the phone company and find out all the calls that made. And with that, Barry and Joe sank into the hotel easy chairs. They shut their eyes and they waited for the FBI to break down the door. And I'm kidding, of course. I mean, come on, this is Barry Keenan we're talking about here. Barry doesn't just roll over when the chips are down. He makes a plan, remember? He goes all in. And this time was no exception. Okay, from the guy that brought you Dupe the FBI Agents by Hitting the Bunny Slopes, get ready for the sequel. Do a bunch of Christmas shopping. That was the plan. Now look, I know it sounds weird. It's probably not what you would do in the same situation, trapped, every viable means of escape closed off. But people react in all different ways in moments like this, some tragic, some violent. But Barry, Barry decided to put on a Santa hat. I said, no, Joe, we gotta, the least we can do after going through all this trouble is to get Christmas presents for our families and friends. And so we put together this Christmas shopping weekend. Before hitching up the reindeer to his sleigh, Barry did take at least one precautionary step. And so I went to a barber shop and got a butch haircut. Next, Barry rewarded Joe for his mostly undying loyalty. I went and bought Joe a motorcycle to sort of keep him occupied while I was running around doing errands. Joe takes the motorcycle I bought him and takes a ride up to Malibu and what have you. Meanwhile, Barry was busy getting his ducks in a row. I kept in telephone contact with Pam, but didn't want to have any contact with her until we hooked up for Christmas shopping on Friday. Now, if you notice, even as Barry was taking care of the people that he'd relied on to get him this far, he sort of kept them at arm's length. And when he was at my house telling the story, that, that struck my producer, Pat, as a little strange. Did you feel guilty for bringing these people in to the plan? Not at this point, 
because they, I was basically securing their financial future because I was planning to not only to give them part of the ransom money, but be part of my investment plan and give them a little stipend from the money that I would make buying and selling real estate, blah, blah, blah. And as I listened to this, I couldn't help thinking that on some level, Barry knew he might not be able to escape the mousetrap this time. But here he is holed up in a hotel in the same city where he's a wanted man. He's already bought Joe a motorcycle. Why not just ride off into the sunset himself? Remember the version of Barry I talked about way back at the very beginning of the story? The little boy determined to exist in a state of grace so he could escape eternal damnation? When his first shortcut didn't go the way he planned, he resolved to live the most virtuous life he could and hoped that God would reward him whenever it was time to go. Now, Barry had strayed pretty far from what most of us would think is virtuous, but still, in this moment, I'd like to think that Barry reconnected with that hopeful childhood version of himself. His whole life, he'd been trying to avoid hell, and now he dragged himself right into the middle of it. Deep down, rich or poor, flying high on a lucky gamble or careening toward the gutter of a pinball machine, Barry was still that troubled little kid. He never gave up, but some days were harder than others, especially this day. There wasn't any guilt. There was just like, this is like a nightmare I'm in, and I have to figure out how to get out of it. The committee had gone silent on Barry. Luckily, however, he was still a baron. So I called another baron, Dennis Gray. Uh, his wife answered. We were very good friends. And she knew about the kidnapping. And she said, oh, I'm so glad you're OK. And of course, you can stay here and come on over. Another thing I said way back in the first episode was how there's just something about Barry that makes you want to invite him to pull up a chair. And that's what just happened. You caught that, right? Dennis's wife knew about the kidnapping, and yet she still said, come on over. So we get to the house in Culver City, and Joe and I come in with the ransom money and some of our stuff to spend the night. And we thought it would be funny to have all the money spread out on the floor when Dennis came home. So we hid in the closet when he drove in the driveway, and she gets in the bed and says, honey, come in the bedroom for a minute. And uh, he comes in and she says, do you notice anything? He says, yes, you're in bed with your clothes on. And then just then he saw all the ransom money spread out on the floor there. And he goes, <laughs> and then Joe and I fall out of the closet and we're all laughing and carrying on and so forth. And uh, Dennis said, I need a drink after that. So we had a couple drinks and then decided we'd walk on the money and dance on the money. and play football with a bundle of $10,000 and $100 bills. And uh, she went looking for a Monopoly game so they could play Monopoly with real money. For one last night, it was just like old times. We lit a cigar with a $100 bill. It was sort of like an old Baron's night of doing radicals like the palm trees on fire and stuff like that. The kidnapping was a radical to beat all radicals. But when God visited Barry on the radio, he only signed off on a kidnapping in the name of saving Barry's family. This was supposed to be a higher calling, not another radical. If Barry was gonna make it through the final stage of his plan of operation, he was gonna have to do it on his own. God had checked out. The morning after the party at Dennis's house, Barry and Joe woke up with a pair of first-class hangovers. And once again, for some reason, they turned on the radio. We heard that one of the kidnappers had been arrested in San Diego. John Irwin hadn't made it to the city of a million secrets. He was headed for the county jail instead. And it looked like Barry and Joe weren't far behind. 
that just meant a matter of time before the gig was up for me. Next time on The Grand Scheme, Snatching Sinatra, Dennis tries to help. Dennis knew a guy who was a safe cracker and a burglar, and uh, he said that he had a couple of friends who needed to hide out. So come into Roger's semi-basement apartment, and uh, he's holding a Thompson submachine gun. Hear it next week for free wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also binge the entire series right now, early and ad-free, by subscribing to Wondery Plus. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. The Grand Scheme, Snatching Sinatra, is based on a true story as recollected and retold by my friend Barry Keenan. Certain names and details have been changed to protect the identity of those involved. The show is produced by Wondery in partnership with Spoke Media. Written by Sam Dingman and produced by Jenna Burnett with Lucy Wong and Kristen Bennett. Research and dramaturgy by Haley Nelson. Alicia Force is our coordinating producer. Our executive producers are Jean-Yel Kastner, Patrick Couday, Aliyah Tavakolian, and Keith Reynolds. Sound design and mix by NPAL Audio. Original music by Mike Bennett, Michael Gigante, and Matt Beckley. Additional music from First Calm and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks to Will Short, Evan Arnett, Carson McCain, Caroline Hamilton, Kelly Kolf, and of course, the one and only Barry Keenan. I'm John Stamos. Thank you for listening. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Grand Scheme ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. But before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Ding! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have a crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. (laughs) Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.